Welcome to Coastal Front. Join us each week as we sit down with the movers and shakers of Vancouver to discuss stories of business, politics, accomplishment, and failure. Our aim is to keep you dialed into what matters most in our city. Now, here's your host, Andrew Johns. Great. So here we are with Matt Horn. You are the Climate Policy Manager for the City of Vancouver. Thanks for coming today, Matt. Oh, that's right. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, I was really excited to find out when you were coming in, uh, said to Ross, you know, there's like so many different things that I'd love to talk to you about as a as a, uh, a homeowner and resident of the City of Vancouver. And I believe that the City of Vancouver is kind of on the forefront of many municipalities, of most municipalities in BC and kind of addressing, you know, climate action. Um, but I also want to spend some time here diving into kind of a not just policy level, but some of the, how these policies trickle uh, trickle down into actual decisions for uh, for the city in addressing climate uh, uh, climate change, because I do believe that um, you know there's a lot of people out there who are screaming you know we have a climate crisis, but then are they actually doing anything to address it on a practical basis? And I want you to tell us about what the city's doing there because uh, I think that's very important. Yeah, there's a big big gap out there for sure. Like we done some recent public opinion research and like concern about climate change is sky high in Vancouver um, but the awareness of sort of what the contributors are and what the solutions are there's still a, a pretty big gap there so it's, it's an important yeah. education piece for us to fill yeah yeah so let's start by climate policy manager I got I mean I got to think you're one of only few people in the country that have this title at a municipality there's probably not a lot of mis- I mean first of all most municipalities probably can't don't have the resources to f- have someone full-time that's doing this role is it, are you kind of one of very few unique uh, unique people out there? Um, I think like it, well within the region and across the country, you're seeing sort of climate both in terms of reducing carbon emissions and preparing for climate change becoming a bigger and bigger priority for local governments. Yeah, um, I, yeah, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal would definitely have sort of positions dedicated to this, but um, it's it's quickly growing from sort of a, a side of desk responsibility in in medium sized municipalities to one that becomes full time positions as well. So. Yeah. Okay. So you've been in this role, you said, I think earlier for, for three years? Yeah, just about three years now. Okay. And w- are you the first one to have this title at the City of Vancouver of Climate Policy Manager? Uh, nope. I, uh, uh, Malcolm Shields was in the position before I was. Okay. So um, at, least, at least two. Like yep. Vancouver's really been working on climate change going back to the 1990s. Oh, really? Okay. Um, Clouds of Change was one of the first sort of city-level climate change plans and was, I'd say, ahead of its time at the time. Oh, what was that? Um, so it, in many ways, it touches on similar things we're trying to do today. So better land use, so you don't need to take as many trips driving, um, better buildings, so we're not using as much energy to, to heat and cool them. Um, so a lot of the similar things, like lots of things have advanced over the last 30 years for sure, but um, the directions it was pointing in at the time are the directions we're still trying to move today in many cases. Okay. So in your role as climate policy manager, um, do you when you came into that role three years ago or today, do you, d- does someone give you direction on what are you supposed to create this uh, policy from scratch yourself or do, do you get direction from higher up that says okay Matt like this is what you, we need you doing or are you, is it the other way around um, <clears throat> it, it's a mix for sure so I think like Vancouver's had a pretty good sort of high-level policy framework and it's been consistent across multiple councils that climate is a concern and we're we're working to address like working to reduce carbon emissions in the city yeah um, so that that high-level direction is has been there like again for 20 plus years in the city. Um, so the council sometimes will sort of provide specific direction saying we would like to see this being part of the overall plan. In other cases, they'll delegate that to staff saying we want to hit these targets. Please come back with us with, with plans as to how to hit those targets. And then I, I yeah, I think it's, it's a great job. Actually, I get to work with lots of colleagues around the city, uh, whether it's an active transportation group or a green buildings team to develop those policies and come back with hopefully what are coherent plans for council. Okay. So we have um, more Green Party members uh, elected in this last um, municipal election than we had before. So I've got to think that there's probably even more focus on being that that's kind of the core of their purpose as the Green Party, as the name would describe. Um, are you noticing the last three years, are you getting more interest in what you're doing and more, um, like are you getting consulted more by council? Um, I So earlier this year in January, council... Um, uh, put forward a climate emergency motion, which passed unanimously. Okay. Um, and then in April this year, we brought back sort of a report, which was sort of a, a set of uh, recommendations of how we could accelerate our work on climate change. Again, that passed unanimously. So 
Um, our green councilors are definitely sort of supporting and pushing on this, but I think yeah. th the same is true across the board. Like it's um, one of the things I find really interesting in working about this in Vancouver. It, it hasn't been sort of a polarized right versus left issue. Right. Um, the, they definitely sort of different councilors will be more amenable to different approaches at a at sort of a nuts and bolts level. But yeah. in terms of a, a concern about the issue and wanting the city to, to do its part, um, that's really been an across the board support. And I think that stems back to the previous council as well. Yeah. Um, so I'd say like, <clears throat> uh, the Green City Action Plan came in place under the previous council about 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, that sort of, I guess, was driving a lot of our action, again, over the last decade yeah. in efforts to reduce emissions. Um, so that, <clears throat> I'd say what this council has done is say, like, we like a lot of what's in there. Um, but it's also clear we have to move faster. We're not reducing emissions fast enough. So they've yeah. asked us to, what can we do to accelerate those efforts? Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Well, you touched on two items that I want to get into. You, you used the word nuts and bolts, and I'd love to dive into the nuts and bolts of what are the things that the city is doing to address, uh, our, like the city's impact on the climate as well as, um, uh, previous council, uh, particularly with Gregor Robertson, and I'm not going to ask you for, I'm going to try and st st stay away from the political side of this because you're not a politician, you weren't elected, and you're not here based on an electoral platform. But he, they did roll out this, you know, Greenest City 2020 initiative, and we're three weeks away from tw the year 2020. And I'm a very passionate when person when it comes to the environment. Um, I'm also a bit cynical or uh, uh, a little bit disappointed with, um, how little has been done here at the city, and I'm just maybe I'm maybe I just need to be enlightened more because I see it more on a on a kind of like I'm looking at more from a perspective of uh, things like landfill, and I don't even know if that applies to the greenest city 2020. So I want to give you the chance to kind of enlighten me a bit more on what the city's been doing. Um, so those kind of tie in together. Let's get into some of the nuts and bolts. Like what are like if if someone's in an elevator and you got only got a couple you know a couple minutes to explain to them what it is that you're doing with the city right now to really address climate change. What, what can we be proud to s speak of today? Yeah, I think so in a Vancouver context, I, I tend to skip over the, the why this is important. Like most, most people in Vancouver get yeah. that, like yeah. they're concerned about it. For sure. With good reason. Yeah. Um, where I tend to start is just like uh, really basically sort of where do our carbon emissions come from and that, yeah. um, space and hot water heating is sort of the biggest piece. So nearly 60% of our emissions come from heating, um, heating our buildings and heating our hot water, so it's burning natural gas. Yes. Um, the other big chunk, nearly 40%, comes from transportation, so cars, trucks, buses, taxis, et cetera, on our roads, right. burning gasoline and diesel. Um, so really when we think about those, it, it, it becomes, like it's not simple to get to the outcomes we want to get to, but the changes that have to happen are relatively straightforward. So okay. um, when we look at sort of buildings, it's more energy efficient buildings, it's shifting to things like heat pumps and renewable natural gas. For transportation, it's walking, cycling, transit, electric vehicles. So it's, it's actually not that long a list of things we need to move towards over the next couple of decades. Yeah. Um, and I think if you're if you're in a place where there's a reasonable understanding of the outcomes we're striving for, then I think you can have quite a good conversation about what policy actions the city takes, and right. so things like bike lanes and things like uh, standards for new construction to make sure they have lower carbon emissions. Sure. So, okay. Well, that's helpful. So is it possible to actually dive right into one particular topic like um, making buildings more energy efficient and being able to look at the post result of, of money spent on say even city hall which is a very dated building i'm assuming i'm assuming it's it either was or currently is very inefficient with its energy use and be able to say you know we're going to spend x number of dollars in upgrading has city hall been upgraded by the way is it uh, a part. number of upgrades to City yeah. Hall, yeah. We've yeah. shifted okay. partially over to a, a heat pump, so we're actually we're getting heat from the air instead of from a fossil fuel. Oh, really? Uh, we're also using renewable natural gas to uh, for the boilers at City Hall. So okay. uh, a handful of interesting things, and also sort of improving energy efficiency. So everything you'd like to see in an overall mix is, is being um, implemented at City Hall. Okay. And when you look at that, are you able to actually go back you know, a year later and say, yeah, you know what, we can tell that we're actually saving this much on uh, you know for the environment and is there even uh, maybe a potentially a dollar savings for this as well or no yeah so in terms of uh, the benefit from an environmental perspective that we um, we have that quantified down to a, a building level so we would you look do. at it um, we would look at it citywide in terms of all the buildings and all the transportation in the city we'd look at it at a corporate level in terms of 
what all the all of our city buildings are emitting and what all of our city fleet is emitting. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a fairly straightforward exercise of taking the energy consumption. So whether it's uh, particularly the fossil fuel consumption, yeah. um, gasoline, diesel, natural gas, and you multiply that by an emissions factor to get an, a, a greenhouse gas emissions estimate. Yeah. Um, so we can track that, and again, um, in both cases, corporately and citywide. Uh, Emissions are going in the right direction. They're they're going down. Yeah. Um, they're not sorry, going. When you say corporately, what do you mean by that? Sorry. Like businesses? Yeah. Uh, no, corporately in terms of city of Vancouver's corporate operations. So oh, our I buildings see. and our fleet. Okay. Yeah. Sorry okay. about that. Okay, gotcha. Um, in both cases, are going down. Um, in both cases, if we really want to get towards the targets that science is saying we need to achieve, we have to be going faster. Okay. Um, from a cost savings perspective, it will be a mix for sure. So. Um, some actions uh, w will save the city money. So if I if I take transportation, for example, on our own fleet, uh, we we have about 120 electric vehicles in the city of Vancouver fleet. Okay. Um, generally, we're finding we're saving money overall. In those so they they do have a they have a higher capital cost. Yeah. Um, but we're saving. This money. would be like like little cars and vans that you see kind of uh, bumping around the city. Is that what you talking when you say vehicles? Or are you talking more like buses and? No, so yeah, like your your standard light duty vehicles, light so like duty your vehicles, Chevy yeah. Bolts and your Tesla Model Threes and those sort of just right. your car, cars essentially at this yeah, point. Cars, yeah, okay. um, so yeah, we will pay a bit of a premium for the capital costs, but we'll save money on energy and we'll save money on sort of the maintenance and operating of the vehicle. Yeah. Oh, um, so when what percentage out of interest? And I, I know, maybe you don't know the answers to this, but like if you look at the total fleet of vehicles, you mentioned there's 120 right now that mm -hmm. are. Zero. I mean, they're basically electric vehicles. Correct. Yeah. And 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 what is that in context of the total fleet of all of? Van Do you know how many vehicles the city of Vancouver has? Um, yeah, I know it's, it's one of the largest electric vehicle fleets in the country. Yeah. Um, what it is in terms of our overall fleet? I'm not sure the exact number there. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just to give another example on the cost side, yeah. so we're next year we're bringing in some medium and heavy duty vehicles, so some of the bigger trucks you would see on the roads. Yep. Um, there's definitely a cost premium for those right now, and we won't make that up in the energy savings. And the, mm. the thinking is, this is we really want to reduce our emissions. We have to get at those bigger vehicles as well. Um, and the, the city's decided we're, we're willing to pay a cost premium on some vehicles in the short term, and sort of both to demonstrate some leadership and bring some of those vehicles into a local market and help sort of bring costs down over time, which is what we've seen on the, the smaller vehicle side. Right, okay, okay, well that's, that's good, that's helpful. And I have noticed a lot of those, uh, there's got the little city of Vancouver decal on the side, and you know, so you know it's a city vehicle, um, maybe because I'm supposed to be getting a parking ticket or something. <laughs> and, but they say zero emissions, you can tell that it's one of yeah. those kind of vehicles, so that's nice to see. Um, so like to me, the vehicle conversion seems like an obvious one. Um, is there a plan to eventually convert and how quickly would we see a conversion uh, to an entirely you know, zero emissions fleet, at least for the types of vehicles that you could convert? I don't think you can do it with pickup trucks yet. And yeah, pickup trucks are coming soon, for yeah. sure. Like there's, I know no, Ford, the F-150 is supposed to be available next year or the year oh, after okay. as an electric vehicle yeah. and the, the Tesla Cybertruck cyber was announced last week as well. Um, Do you think we'll see any Cybertrucks driving around with the City of Vancouver logo on the side of it? Hmm. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. We, we would love to have some electric pickup trucks in our yeah. fleet. What our fleet team decides to go with, whether it's yeah. sort of Ford F one hundred and fifty s or another model, there's there's a few out there that are going to both yeah. be ready. I leave that decision to them yeah. for sure. Um, but yeah, no, I think like that's one. Like in light duty vehicles, we would love to sort of make that full transition over the next sort of five five to seven years. Yeah, Actually, and then it says on the website right here. Yeah. Yeah, we have. So, of course, yeah. Okay, so we've got, what is this? Our plan and uh, implementation will reduce our emissions below 2007 levels. 50% in 2019, 60% by 2021, and 70% by 2023. Yeah, and just to, to clarify this, those are the emissions targets. So we're, oh, I, I think we're seeing really big reductions in emissions. W yeah. We would do that in part through electric vehicles. We've yeah. also switched over our diesel contract to renewable diesel. Um, so it's just uh, we're trying to sort of make take all the opportunities we can to reduce emissions. In yeah. some cases, those are sort of technology-based, like an electric vehicle. In other cases, they're fuel-based, like a, a, a renewable diesel or a renewable natural gas. Okay. Let's talk about that for a minute, moment. What is r renewable diesel and renewable natural gas? I, I don't know if I've ever heard of that before. Yeah, why don't I start with renewable natural gas because it's, yeah. um, it's, it's a more local product at this point. Um, so... Natural gas or natural gas, most natural gas in BC comes from fossil fuel sources. So most of that would come from Northeast BC. Yes. Um, so you pull it out of the ground, run it through pipelines down to Vancouver, and we burn it in our, our homes and buildings. Yeah. Um, the idea of renewable natural gas, it's in essence, is the same product, 
but instead of coming from fossil sources, it could come from agricultural waste, it could come from landfill waste, it could come from wood waste. Um, so you take that, uh, that biomass source, and then, uh, the landfill is a good example. So we have, uh, we're moving forward on a project with Fortis BC um, to upgrade uh, the gas that, or the landfill gas that degrades from the landfill, uh, purify that, and then run it into the gas pipeline. So again, okay. it's, um, from an end user perspective, it's the same product. Um, but we don't need to sort of pull another sort of fossil fuel source out of the ground. We can use it with something renewable, such as agricultural or landfill wastes. Okay. So when you look at landfill waste and converting that into renewable natural gas, is that just capturing gas that somehow gets emitted over the slow decomposition of the landfill, or is it actually being burned? Uh, no, the, the former, yeah. So when organic material goes to the landfill, it, it decomposes over time, and yes. part of that is it turns into methane. Um, so we really, we really don't want methane to get to the atmosphere. It's a much, it's a much worse contributor to climate change than carbon dioxide is. Oh. So we already capture that um, landfill gas or that methane. Right now, quite a bit of it is being flared or burned at the landfill. Oh, I um, see. So a, a better outcome would be to upgrade that and then run it back into the gas pipeline so that we can. We still burn it, but it, we get a beneficial use from it. Oh, um, so that's the the project. How do you capture methane gas in a big pile of garbage? Um, essentially, there's sort of a like a cap or a blanket over the the, the landfill that sort of concentrates it and allows oh. us to, to capture it. And as I said, right now most of that is flared. Oh wow, interesting. And flared meaning basically burned off. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the idea would be stop flaring it, get some some pipes in place or something to be able to convert that into electricity or heat um we wouldn't convert it to electricity so you okay. exactly have a an upgrading facility there that would sort of purify the landfill gas yeah and then run it into the gas pipelines and then it would just it would go to your home or oh, to I your see. building in the same way that fossil natural gas is currently right any sense of what the city of vancouver produces uh in methane gas annually right now from landfill um, I know it's it's about four percent of our total emissions is what comes from the the landfill. Really, in terms of the volume of the gas, um, what we're I know the the project we are in the process of building with uh, Fortis is about two hundred and fifty thousand gigajoules a year. Okay. Um, can can it, you translate that into layman's terms of what? How yeah, many I'm that trying to think. It is heat or it's getting close to I believe about half percent of the gas used in BC. So it's 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 a small drop in the bucket of what we need to do if we really want to transition the gas system to renewable. But it's so, uh, half the gas. No, half a percent. Oh, sorry. half a percent. Yes. Okay, half a percent. Yeah. So okay, point five percent. Exactly. Yeah. Of B in BC, still for it's enough enough to heat a decent number of homes in the city of Vancouver. Yeah, no, it's it would be the biggest renewable natural gas project in the province. Okay. Um, we just I think the challenge will be sort of scaling that up so we can see a whole bunch more similar scale projects over the next couple decades. Okay. Okay, so that's so. Thank you for that, because that's a totally. I, I had no idea that there was actually renewable natural gas, um, and now I get it. That makes sense. What about renewable diesel? What is that? Um, so renewable diesel, the province is working really hard to get sort of local sources of renewable diesel production as well. Yeah. Um, but again, it's a similar idea. You'd, you would use um, uh, waste biomass fuels um, to generate um, to generate. A, Again, it becomes essentially the same product as diesel, but it comes from renewable sources. Yeah. Um, so we we just made that transition in our fleet earlier this year, um, and so far it's been a, a I think I'm quite pleased with the transition again to get um, essentially get off of fossil fuels in our fleet. Um, I think from a, a fleet perspective, and again we look at this in a citywide perspective, um, want to be looking sort of a mix of both some of those renewable diesel options, but also electric vehicles, just sort of to not have all of our eggs in one basket in terms of opportunities to reduce emissions. Sure. Okay, that's good. That's helpful. Um, in thinking kind of more on a global perspective with respect to, you know, addressing climate change and this movement towards electric vehicles. We by the way, we we own a electric vehicle. We bought one for my wife and uh, we just had our company buy an electric vehicle. So I'm a supporter of the idea. Um, but, you know, being one who's a, sometimes, you know, looking at this from two different lenses, a bit of a you know, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be able to support the local, uh, um, you know, mi minimizing local air air uh, pollution. But I also look at it from the big global perspective and say to myself, like, in order to run an electric vehicle, you need an incredible amount of lithium. Mi lithium is mined, and it's mined in a very um, um, unfriendly uh, way. 
and it also requires the building of all this massive build out of new vehicles right you know they say that often I, I don't know if this is true or not maybe you know but apparently the amount of um, fossil fuels it takes to build a brand new vehicle um, today is about the same amount of fossil fuels it takes for that vehicle to run for most of its life I don't know if that's actually true or not but it yeah there's there's a lot of misinformation floating around in that sure. space and I I, I wouldn't it's not a negligible piece in terms of if you look at it on a life yeah. cycle basis, the the emissions from manufacturing and, yeah. and transporting a new vehicle, it, like they are a material part of the overall life cycle. Yeah. Um, there's there's quite a bit of good research out there that I think unequivocally says that a shift from gasoline and diesel vehicles to electric vehicles is, is beneficial to the environment, yeah. even in jurisdictions where you're burning coal for that electricity. So in a jurisdiction like oh, really? BC, where most of our electricity comes from renewable sources, there's a really significant benefit, both in terms of overall greenhouse gas emissions, but also local air quality. Um, I, I, it's not the, I don't want to sort of undermine some of the concerns about materials and, and mining, like those are real. And yeah. um, one of the reasons why in the, the city of Vancouver's framework, we're trying to put both, we want to encourage a shift to zero emission vehicles. Um, but if, if a household or a business is able to sort of make a shift to walking, cycling, or transit, or sort of shared vehicles, we would rather see that. That's like even again, better. That's even better. So right. that's sort of the balance we're trying to strike of encouraging zero emission vehicles, but not in a way that undermines our objectives around other sustainable transportation modes. Yeah, yeah, great point. So going back to the fact that we know that when you, you, know, when you do manufacture a brand new uh, uh, zero emissions electric vehicle, it does take a lot of carbon to produce that, especially when you look at just the battery side of it with the lithium mining that happens in faraway jurisdictions. Um, does that get taken into consideration at all when you guys are trying to look at your um, reduction of carbon emissions or not really? Uh, so historically, no, I would say. Um, increasingly though, the I think the, the direction that um, many cities around the world are, are taking is to try to take better account for those um, the technical term is embodied emissions. Embodied so, emissions. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and it's not just vehicles. Um, it would apply to buildings. Would apply to food across the board. There are right. a lot of emissions that, as consumers in Vancouver or any other city, where we ha hold a responsibility for, but historically haven't shown up in our accounting books. Um, so that's a uh, for, that's a direction where, where a, a gap we are actively trying to address. Yes. Um, probably the place we're best at the moment would be in uh, new construction. Um, so the city has a policy called the Green Building Policy for Rezoning. So any new uh, building that goes through a rezoning process, um, essentially we set a higher environmental bar because the developer is trying to, to build a bigger building than's currently allowed by the zoning. Um, part of that is to calculate and report their embodied emissions. So the concrete, the glass, the insulation, the steel, all those materials have uh, were energy intensive to create and have emissions associated with them. Um, so right now the requirement is that they calculate and report those. Um, what councils asked us to do is uh, to develop plans to reduce those emissions as well over time. So that'll be the next step in that process would be a, a target um, to say reduce those emissions by 10 or 15% relative to a baseline. And um, that will encourage developers to look at things like lower carbon concrete, maybe shifts to more wooden construction, um, even less parking, for example, would be another way of um, reducing the embodied emissions in a building. Okay, okay, well, that's helpful. Uh, thanks for that. Embodied emissions, I'd never heard that before, so that's good. Um, I remember growing up as a kid in the, um, in the early 80s, you'd hear on the news every now and then in Los Angeles, they'd have uh, smog warnings, and people would have to stay inside, especially if they had respiratory issues. Um, and you never hear about that anymore. And I think California really led the charge in the 90s of uh, catalytic converters and you know, basically, you know, making sure that the standard for fuel emissions from vehicles way before we even got on the topic of electric vehicles. Um, and, and as a result, you look at the air quality in Al California and out in Los Angeles is far better than it was in the 80s. I mean, I'm just, I believe that's the case. I don't have any data to prove that. I can say from someone who's traveled down there through my life. Um, and you don't hear about smog warnings really in L.A. anymore. And then even here in Vancouver, having grown up on the West Coast my entire life, um, it seems to me, just like in the summertime, when you get those, you know, uh, get a week long of no, no rain, no wind, that the amount of uh, what looks like yellow sky building up isn't nearly as bad as it used to be. Any sense at all of, of whether, where, where, where are we at in 2019 versus where we were, say, in 2009 versus 1999 uh, with respect to air, air quality? Yeah, so <clears throat> um, air quality, it won't. 
it won't line up perfectly with uh, greenhouse gas emissions as sort of a, a metric. And in some cases, we can be improving on air quality emissions, but we're, con we're continuing to sort of struggle on greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, really? Okay. Um, but in general, I think your, your observations are reasonably accurate. So there's there's been big improvements in the local air contaminants that come from cars and also the general sort of shift in North America away from coal to in part natural gas and also uh, renewable energy um, has really helped reduce some of those like really toxic emissions that we we, we don't want to be anywhere near. Um, th there's still challenges and problems for sure. It was uh, two weeks ago, Metro Vancouver and Environment Canada released a really interesting report on near near road sources of air pollution, um, and just the data, a whole bunch of sort of detailed studies in in Vancouver specifically. Um, really, like I think raising some alarms around um, people that live near truck routes in particular. Um, bigger trucks burning diesel tend to have a lot of um, uh, a lot of a lot more pollutants that you might get from a small car, for example. Um, so Clark Drive was sort of highlighted as an example, and that's also one that, that council has highlighted a couple times as sort of a, a concern. Um, and I think what that report is pointing to is, um, yeah. A, a challenge we have to figure out a bunch of solutions. Both part of that is sort of moving to zero emission vehicles. Part of it's better buildings, so it's sort of better insulation from some of those air pollutants. Mm -hmm. um, but I think levels of health concern that we we really don't want to see in our cities. Okay, um, let's switch to buildings for a moment. Thank sure. you for that, by the way. This is great, Matt. Um, we've talked a lot about vehicles, and I agree with you. It, I mean, I think most people can agree that it, that having electric vehicles, even if the carbon emissions are um, uh, are damaging from producing them abroad and mining this lithium purely from a, a, a pure um, air quality perspective. It's got to make improvements. I'm sure that if we had 60 or 70% of our vehicles were zero emission, it's just going to, the air is going to be cleaner. Um, yeah, air quality. And uh, again, I think the, the evidence is pretty clear that we, we get a climate benefit as well. Yeah. Um, we still want to be sort of dealing with those manufacturing plants so that they transition to renewable energy as well. Even right. So there's, it's not to say it's, it's fully solved, but, yeah. Um, it, it's not a reason to not move in that direction. Yeah, it's moving, moving the right direction. Um, I remember when, and we will go to the buildings in a sec, but I actually just want to think about for a moment the bike lanes. I used to live in downtown Vancouver for most of my adult life here and only recently moved out towards UBC, and I biked everywhere. In fact, uh, I remember one summer I didn't need to touch my car for like three months straight. It was a nice feeling, actually. And it was right at the time when uh, the very first b bike lane, which was the... the uh, um, it was the, the, the sort of uh, pilot testing of a bike lane on Burrard mm -hmm. Street yeah, Bridge. Yeah, remember came that. Yeah, remember that? So, uh, and I, what I love about that was that it was brought in as a pilot, I think, to, so that the people who are really anti-bikers that would, wouldn't get too upset because they could, but the reality was it, it wasn't really a pilot. It was, I mean, when you put those big cement barriers, it's pretty permanent. But I look at the number of people that use that, and I know there's a lot of people say, oh, the bike lanes, you know, middle of winter, someone will take a picture and say, look, there's nobody using these bike lanes. But I look at it and say, take a picture in the summertime when there's all these people riding bikes that alternatively would be driving vehicles. And um, do you guys have any kind of run into many numbers to say like how much the city's been saving in carbon emissions because of the amount of use? Because these bike lanes are like, they're like freeways now. There's so many people using them. It's amazing. It's impressive. Yep. Um, and I think it's been a good move by, I mean, my view is, and I'm sure people listening to this are going to think, Andrew, what are you talking about? It's impossible <laughs> to drive around. Um but what do, you, do you guys have any numbers on that? Do you want to speak to the to the effects of these bike bike paths? Yeah, it's it's tricky to say like one individual bike path and sort of translate that into an impact in terms of carbon emissions. Uh, there's so many sort of integrated effects from a transportation perspective. Um, but in general, sort of as we do track annually in terms of how many people are walking, cycling, and taking transit versus yeah. driving, and uh, that number has been ticking up year over year over the yeah, past. Yeah, you have decade. those little rubber things that go across the bike lane. Is yeah, I'm assuming that's, that's what that's for, right? A yeah. counter. We do manual counts as yeah. well, and. Yeah. Um, so I think last year's data was 52 or 53% of trips in the city are by walking, cycling, and transit. Really? Um, so that's, like, again, that's a, a, a nice milestone to get over the 50% yeah. area, and we want to sort of keep that going up over time. Um, so again, that is going to help us reduce emissions. So every trip that's by walking, cycling, or transit is going to be lower carbon than a trip uh, by driving for the most part. Yeah. Um, we also know that our overall transportation emissions are relatively flat through that period. So what that's pointing to us is, um, well, we are having some success with um, active transportation and transit. Um, it hasn't been enough to sort of overcome some of the trends like we're seeing, like a, a general trend towards bigger and bigger vehicles, which are will use more gasoline and more diesel as a result. So, um, again, the, the approach we're trying to take um, 
as part of that accelerated work on climate change is to um, do more of the work around bike lanes and making it easier to walk to different parts of the city and making it easier to take transit. Yeah. Um, and coupling that with sort of a, a faster transition to zero emission vehicles. Uh, we need to see sort of all, all those fronts being moved on if we're gonna successfully reduce emissions in the city. Right, okay. Um, we, in order to uh, convince people that they should bike or walk mostly to and from work, because that's most of what people do through the week, um, th it has to be within a reasonable distance. You can't expect somebody to walk from Burnaby or totally. Surrey. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so in order to do that, you also have to not only have good bike paths and walking ability, you know, wa like uh, walkways, uh, sidewalks and whatnot, but you also have to have a livable city that people can like live within a certain means and not have to pay a fortune for their housing, which I know is a whole area, other topic about affordability. Um, but how do you guys balance that? I mean, how do you manage, because you know, there's like, you can only walk so far, bike so far. Um, so at what, and then you're also got these other municipalities that you're having to work with because Vancouver actually isn't a hugely large municipality by geographic mm -hmm. standards. Um, can you maybe speak to that at all? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Like there's, People are willing, if, if you provide a safe bike route, people I think in Vancouver are happy to embrace that and use it, but they're, they're only willing to go so far. Um, the same goes for transit. If you've got good transit options, I think people are happy to take them, but again, people would rather spend their time with their families doing things than, than traveling around the city. Mm -hmm. um, so like one of the reasons with the climate emergency response that we brought back to council in April this year uh, we did put land use front and center in that um, in that report, um, and the idea being that if again if you've got someone that has a twenty kilometer trip across the city, most of the people are going to take those trips as driving trips. Yes, um, you can have great bike lanes connecting them. Some people will take advantage of those, or a great bus, and some people will take advantage of that. But it still tends to be a long trip that many people will prefer to bike prefer to drive because of the convenience. Yeah. Um, if say that trip is from your home to a, a dentist, um, if we can sort of create um, the, the zoning so that there's a dentist closer to your home instead of a 20 kilometer trip that becomes a one kilometer trip that's much more viable as a walking cycling or, or transit trip so right um, that's something that like the city centrally controls around land use and um, opening up those opportunities so that all parts of our city become walkable over time is something we really like to do mm -hmm. oh, interesting so the idea there then is to to look at the different pockets of neighborhoods within Vancouver. You've got, let's say, Marpool versus Dunbar versus Point Grey or uh, over on the east side of the Van of Vancouver to commercial. Is the idea there to ma make sure there's the right kind of zoning so that various types of businesses can, that uh, you mentioned dentists as an example, but, you know, you need to have a shoe store and you need to have a baker and a, you know, um, butcher and all those kind of things. Like, is that the idea here? Is that you yeah, trying to I think create... Yeah, we're just at the beginning of like better understanding this, and this is this will be a big part of the Vancouver plan, which is another sort of key initiative of, of this council, okay. and sort of a, a multi-year process that's being developed. Um, part of it will likely be the zoning in terms of what we allow and where. Um, but again, I, you sort of mentioned it, like we're, it's not a it's a very inex very expensive city to live in yeah. um, and operate a business in. So I think if if we do want that sort of mix of services and amenities throughout the city, um, ultimately it probably is going to be more than just sort of um, allowing it through zoning, we'll probably have to sort of figure out some ways of encouraging that type of development as well. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, let's go, let's now jump to buildings, yeah, Matt. Sure. Um, what has the city of Vancouver been doing with its own buildings? Um, I'm assuming the city has a lot of buildings. I, I'm assuming they own the buildings. Yep. Um, uh, what has the city done to this point that you can speak, you know, speak to that is you're excited about that's helped uh, reduce carbon emissions? Yeah, so I'm um, happy to speak to sort of what we're doing with our own buildings and also some of the, the efforts we're making a, across the city with, with private buildings yeah, as well. Yeah, let's do both, yeah. Um, so starting with our own buildings, yeah, we like uh, both office space, uh, housing, and community centers would all be sort of good examples of some of the, the facilities that City mm -hmm. of Vancouver operates. Um, so, yeah, in general, sort of like probably three types of projects we're, we're trying to implement there. So um, heat pumps are, are something we've been really keen on at a city level, and Essentially, at a, at a high level, heat pump is a refrigerator that's running in reverse. Um, so it could take heat from the air and then bring it into a building. It could take heat from a, uh, 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 the waste heat from a sewer, for example, and concentrate that and bring it into a building. So the heat pump is a, a general technology that can take heat from one source and move it to another. Mm. Uh, so City Hall um, is a, a good example. We've switched the, the heating system uh, over to a heat pump. 
Um, and they're also they're very efficient because you're you're moving heat instead of creating heat. Okay. Um, so it's it's helped us. So is the idea there with a the heat pump just to get into yeah. really the sort of understand this at a grade eight level? City of Vancouver, it's uh, it's taking hot air from outside and bring it into the building. Um, instead of hot air, I think it was just ambient air. So we can okay. even in the winter we can take uh, you in essence sort of concentrate the heat from the cold air bring it inside the building and that sort of becomes your heat source. Oh. Um, it's pretty amazing technology. You, like these, these will work. I, you won't get this in Vancouver, but they'll work at sort of minus 25 or minus 30 where you can concentrate um, that heat, small amount of heat in the air and bring it in and provide sort of comfortable heat inside. Really? Um, so yeah, it's, it's really... Im- so yeah. who, like, who, who, makes this, who makes this kind of stuff? You, I guess you have to build, buy some kind of uh, equipment or... Yeah, lots of sort yeah. of like uh, Mitsubishi would sort yeah. of make... Uh, sort of one of the, the big ma- manufacturers right. of heat pumps. Um, it's pretty. It's a much more standard technology in Europe and Japan uh, than it would be in uh, North America. But wow. we're we're seeing increasing interest in it here. Can locally. you get this for your residential home as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Really? Um, so I look it up. A Mitsubishi heat um, pump. Th- there's gen- there's quite generous incentives right now. Province of BC is offering three thousand dollars, and City of Vancouver, if you live in City of Vancouver, is offering a six thousand dollar top up. Really? Um, to, to make that switch. So oh. um, the nice thing about heat pumps is in addition to providing your heat, they also provide air conditioning in the summer. So um, really? Sort of, yeah. So wow. the, Can you speak to the costs? For like, if I'm talking about residential in terms of in, uh, installing one, and then, and then is it more expensive or less expensive to heat your home once you have one? Um, <laughs> so the, yeah, the, the, the reason the incentives are there is because uh, there's a premium right now on the cost for sure. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. the, the incentives are sort of designed, and we're we're still tailoring these to try to close the gap between um, replacing your your gas furnace with a, a gas furnace and switching to a heat pump. So mm-hmm. there, there's definitely a premium out there at the moment. Um, yeah, the incentives are trying to sort of close that gap, and yeah, um, the from an, uh, an energy cost perspective, you would be using quite a bit less energy. Um, your energy bills probably end up being about the same because electricity is a more expensive energy source than, than natural gas at the moment. I see. Um, so the heat and these, these, these you have to run off electricity to operate. Uh, the, there are the some pumps. natural gas heat pumps that are starting to come to market. So yeah. Fortis is running some pilots um, in larger buildings, not in sort of small residential buildings. Yeah. Um, uh, they're using natural gas heat pumps. So, the, but um, in Vancouver, I imagine in, in BC, using electricity is ideal because our electricity comes pretty much almost exclusively from uh, hydro, right? Absolutely, which yeah. means zero emissions for yep. the most part. Yeah. And that's, I think. Um, Many jurisdictions are moving in that direction as well, whether it's yeah. all hydro, but at least sort of a transition towards renewable electricity grids. Yeah. Um, so heat pumps are a, a big part of what we're trying to do, and we've okay. installed those in a number of city facilities. Yeah. Um, energy else? efficiency improvements are sort of a it's a basic idea, but it's just um, if we can use less energy, whatever the energy is coming from, it's yeah. going to cut down on costs and it's going to cut down on the environmental impacts of that energy use. Um, so that could be uh, better insulation is sort of a, a simple example that just right. – Instead of heating the outside, we're heating the inside. Um, and the other piece we talked about a little bit earlier is renewable natural gas. And that's something um, we have a, been using a blend of renewable natural gas in our buildings for a number of years now. Um, and it's, again, a, a, another opportunity for us to reduce emissions. We sort of would see those sort of three pieces sitting side by side in our overall strategy. Right. And by this, 2050, yeah. it's going to be mandated that everyone has to be using renewable natural gas, right? Um. There's the the only mandate for renewable natural gas comes from the province right now. So um, Clean BC is the provincial climate plan. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so when they brought that in last year, um, they committed to a mandate that by 2030, 15% of the gas in the province would come from renewable sources. Um, so in the process of implementing that, um, hopefully, yeah, from my perspective, the city's perspective, that transitions into a like a, an ongoing increase in that renewable blend um, in the gas grid so that um, yeah, where gas makes sense, we can continue to use it as an energy source. Yeah. Okay. When you look at um, the three types of buildings, so let's talk about buildings that the city owns, buildings that the city doesn't own, and then residential. Uh, where, where I mean, I'm going to assume the city's buildings are not a huge factor in the big equation here. It's going to be commercial buildings and residential buildings that are emitting most of the carbon from a heating perspective or cooling, that type of thing. Yeah, so the city's buildings are about 20,000 tons of carbon emissions a year. Okay. Uh, Citywide, uh, you're looking at like 1.8 million tons. Oh, yeah, so it's it's like tiny. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I guess you guys are like the guinea pigs in a sense for what, what different initiatives that uh, other commercial buildings and residential can do because you guys are in the forefront of this. Yeah, I think it's important to do our part. One, like I think we can be a, a leader in terms of bringing in some new technologies into the market, whether yeah. it's heat pumps or electric vehicles. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, people just get cynical really fast if you're asking them to do <laughs> yeah, something, but right. you're not doing it yourself. Sure. Um, so that's an important part of it. Um, yeah. So uh, when you look at sort of the other build, like private buildings in the city, most of the work we've done to date has been on new buildings. Um, so in 2016, council passed what was called the Zero Emissions Building Plan, and that sort of set out uh, a roadmap from 2016 out to 2030. And so essentially what it was was a series of steps saying um, in, for a given building type at a given year, you'll have to sort of meet a certain energy efficiency performance and a certain carbon intensity performance. And those steps sort of went down year over year to the point of reaching zero emissions in 2030. Okay. Um, so I think we're we are th- – uh, three, almost four years into that plan and generally have been pretty pleased with it. Um, we're seeing sort of steady improvement in the performance of our buildings. Uh, the development community has been, in particularly because sort of there's a longer term roadmap and they can plan ahead. Um, I think there's been a, a good degree of receptiveness to that plan. Um, and at least in the first couple of steps, we think we've been able to achieve some pretty good uh, cost outcomes in terms of even where there is a, a a premium on the cost of construction in some cases we're able to see a pretty significant uh, savings in terms of energy uh, reduced energy costs because the buildings are more efficient right um so that's the um that's the new construction side yeah um existing do, do, do builders do construction companies today if they adopt a greener um sort of initiative for their buildings do they get any concessions on things like uh, property taxes or anything like that with you guys or um, nothing on property taxes, but mm. on uh, allowable floor space they do. So we did a lot of work a couple of years ago. Um, so Passive House is a good example. Passive House is a uh, essentially a, a standard for super energy efficient buildings. Um, like a, it called it the world leading standard in terms of you. Um, is Passive it, House an actual place? Is it, are you Passive House is a standard. Oh, a standard. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so a, a I wasn't Passive sure if that House. Was the name of a building that was created. Say a single family home built at that standard, you could heat the entire home with a toaster or a hairdryer. Are that energy efficient really yep that's very impressive um do we have any passive yeah we do we have a number yeah i'd say vancouver would be sort of the the north american leader or hotspot for passive house development ourselves in new york city really um and so that if you're going to build a building that efficient you you need thicker walls for the, the amount of insulation uh so what we've done as a process we don't want to penalize someone for building at an efficiency energy efficient building and typically the city will um, the city rules uh, dictate sort of the size of the box allowed. Yeah. Um, so if you're building to that higher energy efficient, uh, higher energy efficiency standard, we allow the box to be a bit bigger to accommodate that additional insulation space. Mm. So we're not um, ideally where we'd like to move is sort of more of an incentive for that as well. But right now it's where at least we've removed sort of the barrier to building them. Okay. Um, we've provided um, a grant to BCIT to support with training in passive house and sort of low carbon developments. Yeah. Um, we've also been purchasing case studies um, in low carbon developments, again, to try to sort of both um, help pay down some of the upfront costs for more design work um, that might be a deterrent for developers and architects, um, but also to help sort of share that information faster with other developers interested in those types of projects. Okay. Do you have any examples of a, of a passive ho- house? House, is it? Yeah, passive uh, house. It's a, it's a German standard, oh, it, it, okay. but it's oh, a, it applies to buildings. House. Yeah, <laughs> passive house. Um, do, you, do you have a any examples is the, in Vancouver uh, that would be? Yeah, there's quite a few. Um, a great one I, I like talking about is the Heights. Oh, is a looking that up right here actually. It's a rental building at Boundary and Hastings. Um, so that was uh, people started moving into that about a year ago. Okay. Um, just from the outside, it looks like a pretty standard. Um, it's a five-story rental building. Yeah. Um, their rents are market rental, so they're not they're not cheap, but they're not it's, they're not higher than a a non-passive house building yeah. across the street. Um, one of the things really nice about it, I was able to take a tour of it before it was built. So it's a it's a very low carbon building, um, but the thing you probably most notice is how quiet it is. Um, really? So that's a like right between on Hastings, right between Boundary and the highway. It's a it's a super noisy area of the city. Yeah. But if you're in those suites, it's like it's just dead quiet. Really, um, it's because really of these nice. thicker walls is one of the factors. Thicker walls, better windows, more attention to all the air seals and things like that throughout yeah. the building. So you yeah. just you get a better quality building. Yeah. Wow. Is this it here, Ross? Oh, that's beautiful. 
This is the yeah. largest. The Heights that he mentioned is the largest uh, passive house development that's still even Vancouver. Uh, largest in Canada when it was built. Oh. Um, wow. There may be, it may have been surpassed now that we're sort of a year and a half since it opened. But Who built it? Do you know who built it? Uh, Cornerstone Developments, I Cornerstone. believe. Yeah. And I know they've, they've, uh, they're doing a number of others as well. Yeah. Wow. Impressive. Well, let's. How about for residential homes? Uh, I know lots of people probably listening to this podcast who are, you know, div like developers, like sort of small scale developers buying a buying an old house and trying to fix it up. Um, are there incentives that the city of Vancouver has for someone who's trying to do an upgrade on their principal residence or a rental home or something like that? Yeah, so um, you can search uh, Better Homes BC is sort of the um, where all the incentives are. Um, we're trying to work with the province to sort of have it as coordinated as possible, so you right. don't have yeah, to talk. Yeah, because there is the city, and then there's the province. Yeah, so yeah. you can go to that website, and it's it's. I think it it could be simpler for sure, but it's it's reasonable now in terms of if you can sort of say I'm looking at upgrading my home or I'm upgrading a commercial building. Yeah. Um, and then it'll ask you what city you're in. You can sort of see for a given uh, thing. Is uh, it here? Uh, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Is that um, a heat pump that those guys are installing right there? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay. So, um, and you can you can type in the city you're in, and so yeah. a number of a number of cities have worked with the province to provide top ups for those grants. So again, gotcha. um, I mentioned the heat pump example. The province, anywhere in the province, if you're switching from a natural gas furnace to an electric heat pump, you can get a three thousand dollar incentive. If you're in the city of Vancouver, there's an additional six thousand dollars on top of that. Yeah. Um, I what, guess about, what about solar panel? Solar pa power panels. Uh, I, I was thinking about talking with my wife about putting those on our roof. Um, do, do people, is that where it's not very sunny in Vancouver? So I don't know if that's a good so reason. We get a lot of interest in it. And I, we have tried to sort of um, improve our rules or at least not deterring people from doing solar panels. We, we don't have any incentives for that. Yeah. Um, the main reason being sort of BC's electricity system is already um, quite green. Um, so additional renewal, additional renewable electricity doesn't help us move towards our objectives. Um, it really comes down to sort of reducing the fossil fuels we're using. I see. Um, so that's where we've been trying to sort of tailor our incentives and sort of putting more of our efforts into things uh, like the heat pumps, like renewable natural gas. Gotcha. Um, so if someone wants to put a solar panel on their building, that's that's great. We, we don't yeah. want to get in their way to doing that, but yeah. our incentives are, are geared, really f f focused specifically on the space and hot water heating. Right. Is there, uh, is does the city try and, on a sort of a, like a social media level, try and promote uh, British Columbians or Vancouverites, since we're talking about Vancouver here, to uh, continue to do everything you can using electricity because it is going to obviously not have the same carbon emissions of, of, like for example, something as simple as like, go buy yourself an electric lawnmower instead of a gas-powered lawnmower. Does the city really promote that kind of thing? Um, we haven't done a ton in that space, in part just because from a, a climate perspective, something like a gas lawnmower is not a, a huge contribute to the overall problem. So yeah. like the big ones we tend to focus on are our cars and trucks and the space and hot water heating. Mm -hmm. um, if someone wants to switch from a, a gas powered motor to an electric motor, we'd, we'd love to see that. Um, particularly from an air quality perspective, like the, the tiny two stroke engines you see in things like lawnmowers and gas or at least blowers. Leaf blowers, man, those um, things, yeah. They're noisy and they just, they pump out a whole bunch of like fumes that are not good for you. Yeah. Um, so maybe not top of the list from a climate change perspective, but from yeah. a local air quality perspective, it'd, it'd be great to get rid of them. Yeah. I guess you just hand out free rakes, maybe. Free <laughs> rakes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, when it goes, let's go back to kind of like policy level. Do you guys get into discussions about things like, you know, how the, the the summer times are getting you know the air quality is getting bad because of all these forest fires and you know rising sea levels like eh, how much of your guys time is spent kind of talking at a sort of philosophical level and how do you take that and and drill it down into like practical going back to your term at the beginning of this podcast of nuts and bolts yeah it's it can be tricky like i think some of that stuff when when you look at sort of what is happening both locally and around the world from a climate change perspective like it can be pretty overwhelming and disheartening. Yeah. Um, I think we also have a responsibility to, to do what we can to make sure the city is prepared for some of that climate change that is is already happening and um, is already locked in over the next 50 years. So we want to do everything we can to reduce carbon emissions and transition to renewable energy. Um, but because we have been like globally been so slow off the mark with that challenge, we, we have a, a high degree of climate change that's already locked in. Um, so that, that speaks to the city's climate adaptation strategy. And mm -hmm. 
Um, I think a, a term I've been seeing used a fair bit is climate readiness. Um, so the idea that, yeah, sea levels are rising and we're going to have to deal with that with things like a, raising the seawall and preparing for that. Um, we know we're going to get more forest fire events and so the air quality impacts that comes with that. So um, better air filters in our buildings so that you're not exposed to that smoke inside is a, mm -hmm. an example of some of the types of things we can do. Um, so yeah, that's um, council just approved an updated climate adaptation strategy in December of last year. And that's sort of the, um, that's the document that guides our work at a city level um, to, to do what we can to prepare for those impacts. Okay, great. Okay, thank you. Let's jump to uh, the Greenest City Initiative 2020 because right. yeah, yeah. it's the 9th of December here. So we got, what is that, uh, uh, 20, 22 days left uh, before we're in 2020. Are we going to be the greenest city in the world in 22 days? Yeah, so there's, there is no Greenest City Prize. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's interesting. I think you can look at Greenest City in a couple different ways. I think sort of sitting inside City Hall, I, I think it, it's been a, a super powerful frame for the city to really put sustainability central in the work we're doing as a city. Um, and I think when the Greenest City Action Plan was developed, there were sort of 10, uh, 10 goal areas as part of that. Um, we've actually done really well in terms of hitting most of those goals if, and, and in some cases exceeding those goals. Um, so what's been, let's talk about that for a second. What have been some of the really big success points in those goals? Yeah, so active transportation and transit's a, a good example. So we had okay. set a, a goal by 2020, we would, 50% of the trips in the city would be active transportation and transit. Um, we actually hit that objective in 2016 initially, and we sort of continue to creep up from then. So hopefully... And what's the number at today, Matt? Uh, last year's data was 53%. 53% of people that live in Vancouver or... 50% of the trips that originate in the city of Vancouver, so which is where we can get data, yeah. are by walking, cycling, and transit. Wow. Um, and again, that's... Do you have any idea what that number would have been 20 years ago? Uh, I, I'm not sure 20 years ago. No, we yeah. didn't. We've, just, we've only been collecting the data for seven or eight years now. What was so. it in the first year of data? Um, so we were in the uh, 46 or 47. So again, really? it, it's not the sort of thing that you, you realistically expect to change overnight, but... Yeah. That sort of well, that still moves the needle in a pretty serious way. If you're getting, if you're going from 47 to 53, it's a six percent shift. If you think about six percent of the people that used to drive, because I think that's what we're talking about yeah, here, yeah, exactly, and don't drive anymore, that's a lot of cars. Yeah, exactly. And I think if if you if you do get the chance to sort of walk or bike around the city, like you notice, relative to 10 or 15 years ago, the like the the bike network, for example, is way better than it was, and it just provides a, a safer, more viable option for way more people. And yeah. I think when you provide that option, people have shown they're willing to take it. Most people are not prepared to sort of jump on their bike on a busy road and navigate traffic in, in a way that a few people are. So you really have to provide those safe options for people to take that, yeah. that option. Um, so that would be a good example. I think okay. carbon emissions are probably the, the most glaring example of a goal we have not hit. Okay. So we set a goal to reduce carbon emissions by 33%. Um, again, we're moving in the right direction, but not fast enough. So we, by 2020, we hope to do about half of that. Okay. Um, so there's, there's a, again. So we're about 16% reduction? Yeah, that's where we're 16 to 18, where we probably yeah. figure we'll come by 2020. And uh, reduction from what date again? 2007 was the baseline set. Baseline. Yeah. Okay. So we should be able to at least say, despite the fact that we haven't hit that goal of 33%, that um, in going into January 1st of this year, we're producing 16% less carbon in the city of Vancouver than we did in 2007? Exactly, yeah. And our economy's grown, our population's grown. So right. again, there's, I think there's Impressive. a good news piece there. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's interesting. So. Um, I do a lot of work with cities around yeah. the world, like in sort of my counterparts that are trying to wrestle with these issues as well. And yeah. I don't think you could, it's hard to point to anyone that has this fully figured out. Yeah. Uh, and Vancouver certainly does not. Um, but I think lots of the things we've worked through over the last 10 years because of Greenest City are, are things other cities are looking to us to say what they can learn from. So it's, it's nice to be able to share some of those successes and some of the things that didn't work and also at the same time learn from them from the things they're trying. And it, it gives me a fair bit of confidence that from what we've learned and what others have learned, we can definitely accelerate that progress over the next decade. So what are some other cities that you're taking inspiration from or that you're looking at as a, um, as a good example of something we should be doing here in Vancouver? Any, and want to pick a topic, pick a city. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on the topic. So yeah. um, New York is a great example well, for buildings. You know them better than yeah, I do. Yeah. So yeah. I'll give you a few. So okay. New York for buildings, like yeah. I think we have a, like a pretty friendly rivalry there with New York in terms of yeah. like really pushing the boundaries on low carbon buildings. Yeah. And, um, I think we have a good rivalry in how much buildings cost too. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> that, is, that is fair. 
Um, San Francisco. So what's New York doing to make their buildings more efficient? Um, well, I think so. Very similar things on the new construction side. I'd say maybe yeah. we're maybe a, a notch ahead of where they're at on new construction. They've got a really interesting requirement for existing buildings. So that just that law just came into place from their mayor. And essentially, what it does is it sets requirements for existing buildings and year over year or in five year segments that um, buildings. I think it's over fifty thousand square feet have to reduce their emissions. And so you look at your wow. as a building owner or manager, you look at your emissions and say, oh, I'm I need to upgrade my boiler. Um, but next year's threshold is going to be at a certain level, and you sort of make the plans to be to make sure you're under those thresholds. Okay. So um, it's it's a big shift from the way we typically sort of manage buildings, and it's yeah. something we're looking at quite seriously for where we go with our buildings mm -hmm. as well. Okay. Um, you were to mention San Francisco, you were saying? Yeah, so San Francisco I think is a good one to mention on. Uh, Micromobility is sort of the term that gets used a lot. I think just if you – if you sort of go on Vancouver's bike lanes, you see lots of bikes, which is great. If you're in San Francisco, you just see such a range of different approaches to getting around the city. And I sure. think it's, um, whether it's electric scooters or bikes or electric bikes or some of the, like the, the single wheels with little platforms on them. I'm not sure what those ones are called, but um, I think lots of opportunity for Vancouver to embrace sort of a, a wider range of sort of ways for people to get around. And um, again, I think the, the more ways we can sort of provide those opportunities for people to safely get around the city, Different things will work for different people. Sure. Um, and so the other, a, yeah. so, uh, go ahead. The other example I would yeah. give is um, Oslo for electric vehicles. And, oh yeah. Um, so, um, like, just their last year, I think fifty or fifty-five percent of the vehicles sold in Oslo were uh, electric vehicles. Um, so they're just they're head and shoulders above the rest of the world, and it's sort of been a consistent approach for the last decade of providing incentives um, f to to accelerate that shift, and it, it really is paying dividends for the city, and um, I'd say pretty much everywhere. And how do you think they got there? What were the policies they had that uh, has got them there so quickly that maybe we're not getting to in Vancouver? Um, I, I'd say we have elements in place. I mean, keep in mind, we haven't Oslo done it at the scale. the capital city of Norway, which yeah. has a ton of money. I mean, they, they so is that is that been a factor? Is um, that they're... It is for sure. Uh -huh. um, I think like in a global context, Vancouver is a pretty affluent city as well. So yeah. I think we should be able to make some of those transitions too. Um, so a few things they've done. So uh, the infrastructure is there and it's, um, I think we have, we have infrastructure for charging in Vancouver. We're going to need more of it for sure. Yeah. Um, I'd say across the board, anywhere they have an opportunity to provide an incentive to encourage the shift away from internal combustion vehicles to electric vehicles, they've done so. So they have a, a congestion charge around the city. Um, that charge is lower if you're an electric vehicle. Mm. Um, similar to Quebec, I think there's a discounted rate for electric vehicles on ferries, um, discounted mm. re registration fees. So across the board, like anywhere where you're paying a fee for a vehicle, it's yeah. it's higher for the gasoline and diesel vehicle so than it is for the electric vehicle. You could just have lower parking rates if you have an EV. Um, yeah, and this is, it's actually, that'd be amazing. I bet you I do be Paul. That's a big incentive. There'd be a lot of people because parking rates in Vancouver are incredible at some places. Yeah. So it, it, it's a really good example of the challenge we're wrestling with. We, yeah. we want to encourage the shift to electric vehicles. We, we really, we don't want to encourage driving. Um, right. and so one thing we have done in easy park lots earlier this year, all the easy park lots in the city now have 10% of the stalls are uh, designated for electric vehicles. Mm. So in the sort of the Right when you come into the lot near the entrance or ex exit, um, there are stalls that are designated for electric vehicles. So it's, um, you I know, where you guys could put this right. is the big parking lot at Kitts, at Kitts Beach, because oh, I right. I go down there with my kids and uh, they're just unfortunately not big enough to bike yet. We will soon, um, but there's no there's no uh, designated spots for that in in Kitts Beach. Yep, I think that would be a next step for us for sure. That's yeah. it, those would be Parks Board jurisdiction. So it's oh. a oh, uh, slight, slightly different in terms of. Who yeah. gets to decide? But yeah, oh, we, we're keen to work with them on on sort of yeah. advancing a similar approach. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. So, um, so I did. I do notice that, for example, with electric vehicles. I mentioned earlier for our company, we we actually bought a a, a Kona um, Hyundai Kona, mm -hmm. and we had it for about two months, and we literally just sold it back last week to the dealership, and we're now buying a Tesla, because in this building here, there's no knock against. Uh, I think it's Cadillac Fairview who oversees the Pacific Center. But there's one complimentary charging station for non-Tesla vehicle. It's just sort of standard like a vehicle like Kona. And it takes forever to get any kind of charge. We put it there. You only allowed two hours. And you barely get any juice out of this thing. I mean, it's I don't even know why. Versus I can take the, we can take the Tesla down to the very far end of the bank of those Tesla banks, a ton of them, 
and get it charged very quickly. This goes, so in order for us to conveniently keep the Kona, we would have to drive, I think it's about two blocks from here, there's some kind of charging, DC hydro charging station. But being that most of downtown Vancouver's parking has now become underground in private buildings that aren't owned by the city, um, how do you guys address that? Because there's a good example where I'm a concern. Now, fortunately, we're, you know, I'm a big advocate. So when the team said, let's just go to a plug-in hybrid, I said, no, no, I want zero emissions. I don't want our business to be associated. I want us to move in the right direction. But not everybody's going to make that kind of decision. And I can imagine a lot of people who would have been looking at this, maybe just said, you know what? I bought it or I, I did my research and I realized I can't really charge my electric vehicle downtown. Um, how do you, how do you, wanna, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, well, for, thanks for making the switch to the, the electric vehicle. It's, yeah. it's great to see that sort of leadership. Um, so again, this, I can refer back to another 2016 piece. So council yeah. approved uh, the electric vehicle ecosystem strategy, which is sort of, again, sort of the guiding document we have for electric vehicle charging infrastructure in the city. Um, and we're really, we're trying to take a multifaceted approach with that. So, um, so for no, uh, at this point, pretty much all new residential construction, the parking stalls, whether it's a, a new tower or a single family home, those, all those parking stalls would be ready for electric vehicle charging. And that sort of at least gets at the new construction side of it. Um, the city's also in the process of building out our own fast charging network. So by the end of next year, um, the objective is to have a, um, what's called a, a fast char or DC fast charger, sort of the, the super fast chargers for electric vehicles, um, everywhere within a 10 minute drive of the city. Okay. Um, so we've got three of those in place now and to, through the remainder of this year and into uh, next year have another seven or eight sites to install Where those. are the three fast charging locations today for the city of Vancouver? Um, so Empire Field, um, South Hill uh, Business Improvement Association, so that's Fraser, um, and the construction actually just started on one at City Hall that'll okay. be going in, so hopefully that'll be operational earlier in the new year. Yeah. Um, you mentioned BC Hydro, they have um, four fast charging stations in the city at their own head office downtown. Yeah. Uh, Carisdale, um, in Carisdale, and then there's the uh, on Marine Drive at the Canadian Tire and the, can, uh, sorry, the Superstore on Marine Drive and the Superstore on Grandview Highway. Yeah. Um, and then you, you also mentioned Tesla. They've got Canada's biggest fast charging site within Pacific Center. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're just, they're a company that is looking a couple steps ahead in terms of yeah. how much demand there's gonna be for this. And, sure. Um, well, that's why we're switching to the Tesla now. No knock against Tesla, but like, you know, I mean, we were kind of forced to based on just the fact that it was so impractical to try and get our, the, the Kona charged. Uh, would the city ever entertain something like uh, going to a company like Cadillac Fairview that oversees, is it Cadillac Fairview that oversees, yeah, that oversees Pacific Center and saying, well, we don't own your land, but we charge you property taxes here. We'll give you a slight discount if you go and build out a few more, um, you know, non-Tesla uh, charging stations. Do you guys do that kind of thing? Yeah, so like right now, I, I should mention, so the, the, the Clean BC, the Provincial Climate Plan, they yeah. have incentives right now for home and workplace charging. So They do? If you, yep. Hmm. Um, I, I can't remember the exact dollar values, but um, both for if, if a building operator wants to put charging into a, an office parking lot, uh, for a strata, a rental building, um, that, that those incentives are available in the, in the market right now. Um, We've given some consideration to that. Um, it actually gives me a chance to sort of give a plug for uh, next year. We're, we're launching a bigger public engagement around where we're going with the climate emergency work writ large. And okay. um, that idea of um, discounted business licenses, for example, for businesses that are making that transition is something that's come up. Um, the only place we have it in place at the moment are the ride hailing rules that council approved earlier this year. So okay. um, every ride hailing company, as they start operating, they'll pay a per vehicle fee to the city. Um, we've cut that fee in half for zero emission vehicles. Okay. Um, similarly, for car sharing companies, we've cut their parking fees in half for zero emission vehicles. Okay. Um, so we're trying to build in those types of incentives to uh, to support a shift, and yeah. I think it's uh, it's an interesting area where we we could do more for that. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's an idea for you. Maybe maybe uh, um, lobby Cadillac Fairview to throw in a few more. Um, doesn't matter for us now. We're getting the Tesla. But just to wrap this up, man, I really appreciate coming. This has been very enlightening just kind of gain big picture, kind of high level, when you look at the um, the initiatives of the city today to try and reduce carbon emissions, um, it, the biggest emissions right now are coming from vehicles in the city and inefficient buildings. Is that is that correct? Yeah, space and hot water heating space and is hot about water 60%. And 60%. Yeah, and 60 uh, is vehicles are just shy of 40%. Okay. 
Wow. So 60-40 between those two. Yeah. And you got a small slice from waste is the other bit. A small slice from waste. So if as individual residents here in Vancouver can try and do something, because I always love the philosophy of think globally, act locally. If you were to kind of tell them, here's what you could do at a kind of act locally level, this is what I would recommend as the climate policy manager for the city of Vancouver, what would you tell them today? Um, well, at, at a high level, I would encourage people to engage with, with the city, with the province, with the federal government, because really I think we're only going to solve this problem if we, we change our policies and change our systems so that these changes become consistent across the board. So yep. um, from a city perspective, uh, February to April next year, we're running some public engagement around this, so we would love to hear from people that are interested in the topic. Um, in terms of the specific things people can do, so we've talked about a lot of them today. So yep. in your home or your building, things like a switch to a heat pump, improving energy efficiency, switching to renewable natural gas, those are all things that people can do that would reduce their carbon emissions. Uh, for transportation, again, it's not not rocket science. Uh, walking more regularly, biking more regularly, taking transit, and shifting to electric vehicles are sort of the, the pieces that are part of the mix. Yeah. Okay. Great. And Matt, uh, just to be clear, on the city of Vancouver, does it do you have on your website somewhere like a, a, a sort of entry point that people could go to? Like, if I'm one that's not really does, I don't. I'm, I'm a homeowner. I want to do something better for my my children's generation and feel good about it but i don't know what that is and since you pointed out the 60 percent of uh, carbon emissions in vancouver come from uh, space and hot water heating yeah what's so uh right now the we're trying to keep all of our information at vancouver.ca slash climate emergency okay um so it's uh, right now you'd sort of find that most recent report that we took to council a little bit more basic information on where things are at um, over the next month, we'll add a fair bit more information there in terms of what that public engagement process looks like and people are, whether they're interested in engaging at a high level or diving right down to the details around a specific policy area. So um, that up, that website will see a number of updates over the next couple of weeks. Okay. And is, is it here, Matt, just to make sure we're clear? Can you scroll up to the top there, Ross? Because this is climate emergency response, but you're saying... It's it's the city of Vancouver forward slash climate emergency. Yeah, that's the correct website. Right now, that is still pointing to the work we took to council in April of this year. Um, over the next sort of week and a half or a couple of weeks, we'll have that updated with information of what's happening in 2020. Okay, great. Well, Matt Horn, Climate Policy Manager, City of Vancouver, thanks so much for coming on to uh, Coastal Front today. Really appreciate it. It's been wonderful having you here. Yeah, and happy to. Yeah, great. and maybe we'll have you come back in April, right, maybe just before or after you're doing your... Uh, public consultation and talk about this again and make sure that the word gets out there so people do get engaged. I think yeah. that's, that's what we need. At the end of the day, think globally, folks. we got to act locally. Yeah, I'm yeah. happy to. Great. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate okay. it. Thanks. Yeah. Have Thank a great you. day. Thanks.